0: Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Chesapeake Colonies, Part 2. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, The Anglo-Powhatan Wars. Throughout the 1620s, the Jamestown colonists and natives clashed violently. Three separate wars would occur between the English in Virginia and the Powhatan, from 1610 to 1614, 1622 to 1632, and 1644 to 1646. Now, what ultimately happened to Pocahontas? Well, in 1613, the English kidnapped her and tried to ransom her back to her father. Powhatan provided some ransom, but not all, and so the English just kept her. When the English later pressed him on the matter, the king refused to give more, so Pocahontas decided to stay with the English. In 1614, she married John Rolfe, converted to Christianity, and took the name Rebecca, and she gave birth to a son. This briefly brought peace from 1614 to 1622. In 1616, the Rolfe family went to England on a trip sponsored by the Virginia Company. In 1617, the Rolfs were planning to return to Virginia when Pocahontas grew ill and died of tuberculosis. The truce lasted until 1622, when the Pohatan chief, Opa grew tired of insults, atrocities, and sense an opportunity, so he decided to act. On Friday, March 22, 1622, the Great Indian Massacre occurred. With precision planning, the Pohatan Indians pounced on the English villages and settlements, though Jamestown luckily raised the alarm just in time. In a few days, nearly one-third of all Virginia's colonists were killed, but a critical error was made. The natives had launched an impressive first strike, but as we discussed in a previous lecture, native warfare was different from European styles, and the complete destruction of an enemy was not something that was planned. The English thus got the breathing room they needed. In 1623, the Powhatans were starving, and some wanted to make peace with the English. So they invited them to a negotiation and 250 Indians attended. At the negotiations, the English gave them poisoned alcohol for a toast, and when the Indians drank it, they choked and were then slain with swords by the vengeful English. For the next ten years, every spring, the English force marshaled out of their fortified settlements to decimating the surrounding native tribes with no interest of peace. Finally, in 1632, peace was finally made, with massive territorial concessions and a defensive network of force and palisades being built. A decade passed in relative peace, until Chief Opa Kanao attempted one last great sweep in 1644. This time, 500 Virginia colonists were killed, but these deaths represented only one-tenth of the colony's population. The English, now suffered several preemptory strikes, reaped horrid destruction in all directions against any native, regardless of whose side they were on. The result was conclusive. In 1646, the English captured the Powhatan chief, who was nearly 100 years old, blind, and crippled. The governor of Jamestown wanted to take him for a trophy but an angry soldier shot him dead. The war was devastating for the natives. Their population declined from 24,000 people to just 2,000 in 1669. In the Treaty of 1646, native tribes, who had no authority to do so, ceded large swaths of southeast Virginia to the English. The English had no concept that these tribes were singular entities, with no authority over other tribal lands. But they did not care, and they enforced the terms of the treaty with brutal efficiency. Any natives caught on ceded land were shot dead. English cattle freely roamed over native fields, which were destroyed. The natives begged, Your hogs and cattle injure us. We can fly no farther. Let us know where to live and how to be secured for the future from the hogs and cattle end quote. Palisades and other defensive walls were built between Indian and white settlement areas. The result was a cleared zone of white colonization that solidified the racial geography of Tidewater, Virginia. But a thing about walls is they rarely work, and both sides frequently raided into others' land. One last point to make about war and society. In each conflict, Native and English understandings of warfare affected its conduct and outcome. European styles of constant campaigning exposed the error of natives' singular attacks to subjugate a tribe and incorporate it. The English lessons of the Irish conquest were brought to bear, as atrocities and enslavement reaped large rewards and did much to lay low the Indian peoples all of these conquered lands were gobbled up by settlers for their tobacco fields. The defeated tribes fused into new confederations and moved further west, creating frontier pressures on other tribes while also providing additional manpower for the new confederations. These newly conquered areas on the frontier, far away from profitable waterways, were settled by former indentured servants, but these will not suffice, as the desire for more land will rekindle conflicts 30 years later as more territory is required to feed tobacco's insatiable lust. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Maryland. In 1632, the Crown set aside 12 million acres of land on the northern head of Chesapeake Bay for a second colony called Maryland. This was a proprietary colony, meaning that it was the personal possession of Cecil, Lord Baltimore, to govern. Proprietary colonies represent private interests, and in this era, there are just joint stock company colonies and proprietary colonies, but later on we will see the switch to royal colonies as a result of politics and economics. Maryland was supposed to be a refuge for English Catholics since many of them had been persecuted in England. In England, no Catholics can hold public office until well into the late 1800s. Charles I, the son of James I, and a closet Catholic, was sympathetic towards Catholics. Now, despite this colony being a refuge, ships containing both Protestants and Catholics overwhelmingly came to the colony. In 1634, two ships reached the northern head of Chesapeake Bay and settlers founded saint mary city lord baltimore offered a generous headright system of 100 acres for every adult transported to maryland plus 50 acres for every child under 16 years old you paid nothing down and only had to pay 2 shillings per 100 acres per year this means that you have more opportunities and you get more experienced colonists to come to maryland which means that this colony will not have to deal with the similar trials as Old Virginia. In 1649, Maryland's assembly passed the Maryland Toleration Act, America's first attempt at religious toleration, later enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. However, this act was later rescinded by a Protestant-dominated legislature. And this is where we get the twin stories of America, the promise of freedom in the suppression of such freedoms. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Chesapeake Society. The Chesapeake developed a unique society from that of New England and the Middle Colonies. First, it was a rural society, with only two major cities, Jamestown and St. Mary's City, in all of Virginia and Maryland. Because of its rural nature, very few public services were provided, public schooling was non-existent, and the government, outside of enforcing labor contracts, was largely unobtrusive. Thus, the decentralized society was run by the wealthy. And at the time, only English aristocracy were able to become governors. So at the top of colonial society were the hard-driving merchants and planners who created vast fortunes. Their education and manners were not as refined as the English aristocracy, and they were very aware of this. Despite that, they did acquire land, servants, and political influence. They were very touchy about their origins, and did not have an old mystique of the ruling class like the older feudal lords of Europe. They would violently punish any defamers who criticized their birth, their qualifications, or their conduct. One man had his ears nailed to a wooden frame for denouncing the government's counselors. Usually, you'd be tied to a post and whipped and given a fine for criticizing any of these men. So free speech is not a thing yet. It was also a rigid, patriarchal system that modeled its political culture on domestic family life. In a decentralized system, the family household was the most important and personal. These were called little commonwealths in both the North and the South. Men ruled over their dependents similarly as the government ruled over its people. Women, children, servants, and slaves were supervised and disciplined by petty monarchs, the married husband and father. Remember, women are subject to coverture, so they have no legal standing in court. And any dependent accused of killing the patriarch was convicted of petite treason. Men could even be admonished in court for not properly controlling their dependents. Now again, the Chesapeake had a skewed sexual ratio. Men made up 74% of the population, women 16%, and children 10%. So there are a lot of single men out there, and when there are lots of single men who do not have good job or marriage prospects and are armed, things go south really quickly, as we will see throughout history. Now, while this is tough on men, what do you think it meant for women? Well, that's right. It gives them lots of opportunities. You can get out of indentured servitude, and you can marry up into another class. So there will be lots of plantation wives who will conveniently forget about their old, lower-class social status as they play up the wealthy debutante. The Chesapeake developed a unique political culture based on its demographics and economy that would distinguish itself from New England and the Middle Colonies. Like the other colonies, only land-owning men could vote, serve on juries, or hold political office. In a land shaped by dependency, independence was particularly cherished as a visible sign of social standing. It was also very vulnerable, which led to much anxiety on the part of these planters. Now, as I said before, the Chesapeake is a rural society, which means it is decentralized, and decentralization of power means the rise of local government. Since the crown is so far away, the wealthiest colonists are the leaders, and they will always oppose taxation, and on numerous occasions, governors who defy them are shipped back to England. The assembly of the rich is called the House of Burgesses, theoretically a representative institution. It will last until 1776 when the American Revolution replaces it with a Virginia assembly. Now, the House of Burgesses is oligarchical. It is not democratic since it is dominated by property-owning elite. Poll taxes made sure that commoners were not allowed to vote. Despite this limited suffrage, it is still the most representative institution in the new world. At the local levels, the most personal interaction that Chesapeake people had with government was the county court and parish vestry. County courts held trials, executed sentences, licensed taverns and ferries, maintained roads, collected taxes, regulated the militia, conducted assembly elections, and enforced legislation. Governors appointed judges, sheriffs, and county clerks, all of whom came from the local elite. The parish vestry were boards of leading planters responsible for building and maintaining churches, hiring parsons, and providing poor relief, all funded by taxes levied on the inhabitants. But the Chesapeake in the South was not the Bible Belt that it is today. In 1668, Virginia had only 62 churches. So by comparison, in Massachusetts, there's about one minister for every 415 people. In Virginia, it's one minister for every 3,239 people. Now, we talked about how Jamestown only survived through the importation of labor while suffering a 25% death rate. From 1607 to 1620, the majority of migrants were forcibly transported, usually unwanted orphans or criminals, punished for vagrancy and petty theft. After 1620, they were mostly volunteers, though poverty constrained their available choices. So taking a gamble on Virginia was better than starving in a gutter in London. Immigration will peak from 1630 to 1660, but again, the majority of people who are coming over are servants. 90,000 of the 120,000 people who came to the Chesapeake in the 1600s were poor servants. Immigration doubled from 8,000 per decade to 18,000 per decade. On better lands and with more experience, the center population expanded, going from 13,000 people in 1650 to 41,000 by 1670. As I said, indentured servants were barely given enough food, clothing, and shelter to survive. Yet as the decades progressed, more and more indentured servants managed to survive. Those who survived wanted to collect their freedom dues. Freedom dues are food, tools, clothing, and land due to a servant upon the completion of his indenture. But these became increasingly difficult to get. As more people survived, and more people immigrated, land became more scarce, so planters needed to find a way to resist sharing their wealth. Chesapeake's political culture meant that the oligarchy had the run of the courts, and this creates judicial collusion, where courts typically side with landowners over indentured servants, even in the most obvious cases of abuse of indentured contracts. The courts also dished out brutal punishments, Landowners kept laborers in line with these brutal punishments of beatings, whippings, and withholding food and clothing. Even in the case of working someone to death, the courts usually sided with the landowner. In addition, the courts would often extend indentures. Landowners worried about providing freedom and freedom dues to indentured servants found ways to increase the terms of indenture beyond the original contract. Even giving birth could result in an extra two years of an indentured servitude. So as you can see here, the courts are stacking it against the common person. Now, as I described earlier, in 1619, a new tradition in the Chesapeake will begin. Slavery. But let us ask one question. Why not use Indian slaves? Well, colonists had originally tried to enslave Indians, not just Africans, but this did not work well because Indians could run away easily or die of disease. Well, in 1619, an English pirate with a letter of mark from Holland ended up raiding various Portuguese supply ships used by the Spanish during the Iberian Union. The English captain managed to take 19 Portuguese-speaking slaves from the Luanda region, and he then brought those men to Virginia to sell. At this time, slavery is not yet codified in law by race, so we do not know exactly what happens to these 19 slaves. But what we do know is that over time, Virginia and various other colonies begin codifying slavery in their legal codes. The first such slave codes originate in Massachusetts in 1641, and then later Virginia in 1661. In this era, most slaves likely worked on tobacco plantations, but one or two may have eventually been granted their freedom under terms of indenture. So early on, not all African Americans were slaves, and a good example of this is Anthony Johnson, who lived on Virginia's eastern shore. Johnson was a black man who had a 250-acre tobacco plantation and owned at least one slave himself. He apparently told one of his white neighbors, quote, I know mine own ground, and I will work when I please and play when I please. When his white neighbors attempted to lure away Johnson's slave, he took them to court and won. And this shows that race is not yet as firm as it will later become. So then we have to ask ourselves, why the switch to slavery? Well, slavery is slow at first because landowners did not want expensive slaves to die, like most indentured servants. So slavery did not become the majority American labor system until the end of the 17th century. By the late 17th century, fewer white Englishmen were immigrating to the Chesapeake, and economic conditions in England had improved, so poor whites had less of an incentive to leave. But Chesapeake landowners needed laborers, so they increasingly turned to slaves. Lastly, a major social upheaval would provide the impetus to switch to a new labor system. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Prologue to Rebellion. Due to demand for tobacco and its intense cultivation on newly stolen native land, there was a great deal of prosperity in the 1650s and 60s. Survival rates improved, and those lucky enough to get out of their indentured servitude contracts were given their freedom dues and attempted to cultivate tobacco. Due to international demand, tobacco prices rose and made the rich even richer. Some former indentured servants were able to ride this wave of high prices and managed to begin farm building. The cost of getting into tobacco cultivation is relatively cheap, with tools, seed, food, and clothing for the next year along with a small plot of land, and you're good to go. Most houses on these farms are exceedingly simple, even among the wealthy. There is very little furniture, and if there is any, it is made of cheap wood, and most of these homes rot out after about 20 years. Regardless, we do see some social mobility, despite the elites rigging the system. But things begin to unravel in the 1670s. By the late 17th century, large numbers of frustrated freedmen, former indentured servants, existed, and Virginia was experiencing serious class divisions. You had the elite landowners, tobacco farmers who had indentured servants. They tended to live in Virginia's Tidewater region, and they controlled the colonial government, which taxed the commoners heavily. Next, you had free poor whites, former indentured servants who had acquired their freedom sought land on the frontier, and most of them lived in western Virginia, and they greatly resented the planter aristocrats from the east. Many were too poor to own land and could not find wives, as men still greatly outnumbered women. They allowed their hogs to roam freely, which upset the natives, who attacked the colonists as a result. In addition, these poor whites were forced to pay one-tenth of their annual tobacco crop in taxes, So as you can see, it's a very heavy-handed system. Now, there were also white and black indentured servants, and at the bottom of Chesapeake society were the slaves. But an interesting thing occurs. Whites and blacks work side by side, so they aren't that scared of one another yet. They can still work together against the elites if they unite. Well, when tobacco prices crash, this will wreak havoc on the economy, because there is no economic diversity. It hurts the economy because Chesapeake is a single crop system. There is also a great deal of land scarcity. Freedmen were not allowed access to land in the east, so they had to squat on frontier lands, which again brought about native conflict. As a result of all these factors, social mobility stagnates. In fact, One Crown investigation found land hoarding was a huge source of discontent among the lower classes, which is the exact thing that these people had fled from England over. Lastly, Indians resist white expansion in western Virginia, and freedmen grow angry that the government of Virginia did not do enough to protect these white settlers from Indian attacks. Making this all worse is a very, very obtuse royal official called William Berkeley. Berkeley is the royal governor of Virginia, who had been in office for 30 years. He was a man of an aristocratic background and hated commoners. He instituted high taxes, again paying one-tenth of your crop a year in taxes. He made over a thousand pounds a year, while the average small farmer made three pounds a year in profit. He created a tax system that taxed the poor more than the rich. One commoner complained, quote, A poor man who has only his labor to maintain himself and his family pays as much as a man who has 20,000 acres. Also, Berkeley had a great deal of corrupt local governance. He put his favorites in place, he packed the courts against the commoners, and he did not allow elections for 15 years. In addition, he had no desire to foster local politics religion or education he said quote i thank god there are no free schools nor printing in virginia and i hope we shall not have these for a hundred years for learning has brought disobedience and heresy into the world in printing has divulged them and libels against the best government god keep us from both end quote well in order to avoid these outlandish rents many commoners moved to the frontier while well, they came into conflict with natives. In 1675, white settlers started a war with the Susquehannock tribe and murdered several chiefs who came to negotiate peace. They petitioned Berkeley to help them out, but he refused. Now, Berkeley refuses not out of the goodness of his heart, or because he wants to help Indians, but because he and his wealthy friends have a monopoly on the deer skin trade, and he doesn't want to affect his profits. Also, Berkeley wants to keep commoners in the East, where they would have to pay rents and continue working on elite fields. So, Berkeley proposes building a series of fortifications and walls, but the colonists hate this. Fortifications are ineffective, and they would not only have to pay for it, but build it themselves. The point is that this is an example of the elite attempting to keep the poor poor, in the rich, rich. Please advance to the next slide entitled Bacon's Rebellion. Bacon's Rebellion in 1676 is an event usually associated with the growth of slavery in the Chesapeake. Nathaniel Bacon was a gentry rebel, a 29 year old aristocrat in western Virginia, a member of the House of Burgesses, and a relative of Berkeley by marriage, as well as a member of the Governor's Council. Angry commoners eventually rallied around this man. But Bacon didn't love commoners. He just resented Berkeley and his cronies and wanted more power for himself. So this isn't a revolution, but rather a split in the ruling cabal. Bacon undertook several measures. He began mobilizing a militia to protect whites from Indians, and he began indiscriminately killing natives regardless of their tribe. Because as one American once said, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Well, these attacks escalate, and Bacon ignores Berkeley's orders to cease and desist. In 1676, Berkeley proclaimed Bacon guilty of treason. Well, now Bacon needs even more men, so he will promise whatever he needs to, to whomever he can. He pledges immediate freedom to all servants who join the rebellion and he promises to lower taxes if he is successful. Thus, he is stoking class resentment against a corrupt oligarchy. Well, in September of 1676, Bacon's army drove Berkeley and his supporters across from the Chesapeake, and he then proceeded to burn Jamestown to the ground. So it looked like Bacon might be successful. But just one month later, in October 1676, Bacon died of dysentery, and the rebellion collapsed. And it's important to note that Bacon never wanted independence like what will happen 100 years later. All he wanted was more power, and he said and did whatever he had to do to get it. Berkeley then returned to Virginia's western shore with English ships, and by January 1677, the rebellion had collapsed. Please advance to the next slide, entitled... Rebellion's Consequences As a result of the rebellion, 23 rebel leaders were immediately hung. In rebel lands, and property was seized. So, apparently Berkeley has learned nothing from giving a hard hand towards the commoners. Well, the English king, Charles II, is upset, because he gets a ton of revenue from the tobacco trade, and that trade has been interrupted by this rebellion. Charles considered Berkeley an old fool, and in a show of force, he sent six warships and eight transports bearing 1,100 British soldiers to Virginia. The Crown was worried that more rebellions will happen after Berkeley's reprisals, or worse, people might decide to plant corn instead of tobacco. So Charles removed Berkeley from power, and he died a year later in disgrace. British officials then try to court the middle class common planters at the expense of the elites, and the colonial elites hate this, saying that he is worse than Bacon. Remember, this is all about power and control. Well, the crown initiative weakens when most of the soldiers and royal officials die within four years. Thus, in 1682, the occupation ends, and the remaining 200 troops are disbanded and settle in Virginia. But the lessons of Bacon's Rebellion are numerous. Immediately seeking popularity, the elites lower the poll tax. In addition, planters will keep taxes low and scapegoat royal officials over anything. This is the birth of anti-British imperial authority, and the elites portray the royals as parasites rather than themselves. The elites also learned from the struggle to define native and white lands, a common theme in American history. Planters will allow white expansion and go back on agreements with Native Americans so that they can unite the whites by race against natives. Planters also saw white indentured servants as too difficult to control and that trouble could arise from having a lot of poor, landless, armed men in the colonies. This results in an alliance between the planters and the common whites on who should rule at home. They will also give a better headright system to create a favorable middle class and give an air of social mobility to the landless poor. As a result, the elites will move away from the indentured servant system because it is too difficult to control these armed poor people. And what does this mean? They need a new labor source. And as a result, slavery explodes in the Chesapeake, and the increased importation of black slaves occurs while reducing the number of indentured servants. Planter elite increasingly play the race card by encouraging poor whites to discriminate against blacks, because the planters fear that the blacks and poor whites will ally themselves again in the future. As a result of this the number of Chesapeake slaves increases dramatically in the years after the rebellion. In 1650, there were only 300 slaves. By 1700, there were 13,000. And by 1750, there were 150,000 enslaved African Americans in Virginia alone. Thus, the planters enjoyed a new air of authority they wanted to display. They wore expensive clothes, They built big plantation homes, and they had large public processions. They would come into church late and leave early, all while the commoners watched them in awe, hoping to be them. While they work on this racial alliance, they can still be expected to be given deference, a sense of superiority, but they are still supposed to talk and treat commoners affably you also are supposed to cultivate a sense of generosity as an elite man, especially at election time, where food and drink and fun are liberally distributed. And a good example of this is Washington's election in 1758, where he gave 160 gallons of wine to the locals to secure his position on the legislature. Thus, the elite secure their positions of power by dividing the poor based on race, while throwing them some scraps in order to maintain their status in society. And that is a common theme of human history. Divide and conquer. That is all I have for you for today. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.